What up? Welcome to Pound the Rock, the Scores NBA podcast. I'm Joe Wolfond, in studio with co-host Joseph Cacharo. What's going on? We are um, six days away from the start of the 2019-2020 NBA season. But the headlines continue to be dominated by off-court issues. And I'm talking, of course, about this whole NBA, China, Daryl, Morey, Tweet, imbroglio that LeBron James uh, has recently inserted himself into. And I think we got to spend a few minutes off the top and just talk about that and talk about what he said, maybe why he said it, and what the fallout has been. And after that, we're going to get into the remainder of our 2020 championship contenders and talk about why they might or might not win the title this year. But here's what LeBron said a couple of days ago about the whole Daryl Morey situation, which he was sort of indirectly involved in. LeBron was in China with the Lakers while this whole thing was kind of spinning out of control. He came back stateside, and this is what he told reporters about what Maury did. We all talk about this freedom of speech. Yes, we all do have freedom of speech, but at times there are ramifications for the negative that can happen when you're not thinking about others, when you're only thinking about yourself. I don't want to get into a word or sentence feud with Daryl Maury, but I believe he wasn't educated on the situation at hand, and he spoke. So many people could have been harmed, not only financially, but physically, emotionally, spiritually. So just be careful what we tweet, what we say, and what we do, even though, yes, we do have freedom of speech, but there can be a lot of negative that comes with that. Um, And then he sent a kind of subsequent tweet to clarify what he meant. And what he said was, let me clear up the confusion. I do not believe there was any consideration for the consequences and ramifications of the tweet. I'm not discussing the substance. Others can talk about that. My team in this league just went through a difficult week. I think people need to understand what a tweet or statement can do to others. And I believe nobody stopped and considered what would happen. Could have waited a week to send it. So LeBron's been getting some blowback for this, uh, both domestically and in Hong Kong, where people are burning his jerseys. And Cash, you contributed to some of that blowback uh, with a very good article on the score, basically saying LeBron dropped the ball on this one. So what exactly do you mean by that? What I mean by that is I, as I stated last week, I'm, I'm not naive enough to believe that every human on the earth puts humanity above financial gain. Like I, I understand the way the world works. And that's why what I said in my piece is I actually would not have blamed, as disappointing as it may have been, and I think a lot of people would have probably you know criticized him for it, I would have unfortunately understood and been okay with LeBron sitting this one out and protecting his financial... You know what, if that's what it was, if he wanted to protect his financial interests in this case, and if he thought, you know what, I do not have much to add to this discussion. I don't know enough about what's going on Um in China and in Hong Kong. And so I'm just going to say this one out. It's not for me to like butt in or whatever. Again, I think he would have been criticized for that because people would have said, you know, you're a social justice warrior, like tell us your thoughts. But I would have been completely fine with that. Heck, I would have been fine with him if he had been asked about it, still saying, 
I don't know enough about it to comment whether that would have been true or not because again you know and that's something I wrote in the piece um, and everyone wants to think that they would you know they would be this, altruistic right altruistic and this beacon of morality if they had the same platform as celebrities or powerful people whatever but it's very easy for us to tweet that from our world and it's a lot easier for us to do that in our world than it is for those people to actually act on it in their world it's two different worlds so I'll start by saying that but if as LeBron James as the most powerful voice in the NBA maybe in all of pro sports okay when it comes to social justice if you were gonna decide to wade into this fiasco then I just think you you should have come out on the right side of history and I, I don't think he did that um, for someone who rightfully so pushed back against idiots that told him to shut up and dribble for someone that has done so much uh, off the court so much good off the court this guy's built a school he's impacted the lives of kids and others in, in his community and communities around the states around the world for someone who has done so much good off the court and who seems to understand you know being uh, more than an athlete exactly that's his whole thing is more than an athlete and that's what I said like if he he is more than an athlete he's proven that to us so he should have acted like it in this regard and going on about essentially how Daryl Morey's tweet inconvenienced you and again, another thing I point out in the article is I completely understand that members of the Lakers and Nets who were actually on the ground in China, I could understand that in the moment they probably were like, you know what, Daryl, like, could you have not waited till we were not going to be here? Because now we're thrusted. Understandable. That's fine. But you're LeBron James. You cannot make this about the financial, potentially safety issues, whatever that might have come up from this tweet for you and players and people in the NBA and then turn around and say, but I'm not actually going to address the substance of his tweet for whatever reason. I don't know enough because now you've waded into it. Now you're talking about how this has inconvenienced you and these uh, hardships that you've had to endure because of Daryl Morey's tweet. Well, do you know what the substance of his tweet was? And I put this in the article. It's about people way less fortunate than you are enduring much more treacherous hardships. So... That's why I think he dropped the ball because he could have sat this one out. Instead, he decided to wade into it and he decided to wade into it with an absolute garbage take. Yeah, I think, you know, you included this tweet of his from like a year and a half ago on MLK Day when he quoted Martin Luther King saying, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. Our lives begin to end the day we become silent about things that matter. And I 100% agree with you that he could have sat this one out, and I, I would not have blamed him at all. He could have no commented this. And, you know, quite honestly, it's entirely possible that the players who were in China while all this was going down were fearing for their safety. Right. And there is a lot of validity to that gripe and to LeBron's suggestion that the timing of Moria's tweet was a big issue here. But one thing really stuck in my craw, which is, look, first off, like, we don't know what was in Maury's head when he tweeted what he tweeted. Maybe he wasn't educated about the substance or the ramifications. And based on how quickly he deleted that tweet and offered a formal retraction, it seemed clear to me that at the least, he not only didn't consider the implications but also didn't really consider this a hill-to-die-on kind of issue 
about which he just could not in good conscience remain silent. Like, he walked that back real quick. But even still, like, for LeBron to say that Maury was only thinking about himself, just given who and what the tweet was about and how much Maury himself stood to lose, whether he realized it at the time or not. Yeah, and Maury, again, has said he's got multiple friends in Hong Kong right. that are living this. So that part of it just came off as being particularly tone-deaf to me. And also, obviously, saying, you know, me and my team just endured a really tough week, which, sure, I believe that. Like, in the context of your life, this seems like it was a really tough week, but what is actually at issue here are like a vast population of people who are enduring like real hardship. So I think the kind of juxtaposition there doesn't really come off making LeBron looking all that good for saying what he said. Yeah, like, and and he could have, I don't like to do the whole thing where it's like, this is what someone should have said. And right. but, but he could have said something along the lines of, you know, I'll be honest. We at the time we didn't appreciate the timing of his tweet because he knew we were going to be there, and then we were put in a really unfair spot. However, I also understand this is bigger than us, and you know what I mean. Like that—that's a way to spin it. Yeah. Um. And the other thing too, like you talk about, you talk about the the Martin Luther King quote that LeBron tweeted out, uh, 2018, Martin Luther King Day. Yesterday, in trying to clear up his comments from the day prior. Uh, and he did make some good points about how there, are, you know, there are domestic issues in the states that he's been fighting for that get glossed over. And again, I agree with him. But in in having that conversation, he said, "I also don't think that every issue should be everybody's problem." And again, factually, he's correct. There's a lot of crap that goes on in the world, a lot of atrocities, a lot of injustices, a lot of human rights issues. They're all terrible, but. It's impossible for one person, obviously, to address and help with every problem in the world. And so, you know, I understand what he's saying in that, you know, like, just because I'm LeBron James doesn't mean that I can, you know, be this, like, savior for all these things. Understood. But, dude, you are LeBron James. And you, more than anyone, have been very careful with your words over the years because you seem to understand the platform and the power you have. So, knowing everything you've already done and said in the past... Knowing that you've echoed the words of Martin Luther King before about injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere and, you know, our lives begin to end the day we become silent about things that matter, you can't then in good conscience in front of a camera with the world watching now say, I don't think every issue should be everyone's problem. You know, that, that's my issue here is that, man, you got to, with, with stuff like this, like, if you're going to claim to live your life one day, then you better, you, you better be a a representative of that kind of life at all times. And I understand that that sounds hard for someone that's always in the spotlight. LeBron's done a great job of it for 99.999% of his life and career, but he, he dropped the ball on this one, and I don't think, you know, he's above criticism. It's just weird because ever since this whole thing broke loose, I've been really curious about whether a high-profile player would speak out and take Maury's side. And I was curious about how that would change the situation and how the league office would handle it. And of course, LeBron came to mind, which doesn't mean I expected him to comment on it, just that he's the player whose voice carries the most weight, in my opinion. And I figured if anyone could like really throw a match into this tinderbox and really test how far China was willing to go 
in the name of thin skin and hurt feelings and to see whether it would actually put its money where its mouth was or was just issuing empty threats and flexing, I figured it would be LeBron. I didn't expect this to be the manner in which he weighed in on it. Um, So it was disappointing. But I also want to say, because I have seen a lot of people attacking LeBron in a very particular way, this was hypocritical of him, absolutely. But to take it as proof that all of LeBron's community initiatives and social justice activism is just performative or to use this to in any way invalidate um, the support or the voice that he has lent to beyond basketball issues in the past is just bad faith garbage. Yeah. And like that goes for other normally outspoken NBA employees like Steve Kerr and Greg Popovich who've opted to go the I'm not educated enough about this issue to weigh in on it route, which is probably a little disingenuous on both of their parts. I can acknowledge that. But look, everyone uh, chooses the causes that matter to them. Uh, Even the most impassioned, selfless, ardent activists have to choose. And so for these uh, NBA players and coaches to limit the scope of their advocacy or political opinion airing or whatever you want to call it to stuff that happens in the country that they live in where policies and systemic issues directly affect them and their families and their communities, that is 100% their prerogative. And choosing not to wade into foreign policy issues that they may not grasp as fully or that don't affect them the same way doesn't discredit what they've said and done about the things that are going on in their backyard. Yeah, no, I completely agree. I think that's well said, man. And and I'm on, you know, I'm with you too about people that kind of use this as an excuse to drag LeBron. No, that's not what this is about, right? Um, and I think in general, that's just like a, a problem, not necessarily in media, but in, I don't even want to say in today's world, just in the world in general, where people are so partisan with issues that you know they'll dislike someone because they often don't see eye to eye with them and so when like the one thing comes out where they now get the opportunity to drag them it's like see i told you you know i've always been right this person's a fraud this is yeah. like no man he like i said i think he dropped the ball and that's just confirmation bias of exactly the highest order. exactly you know he did drop the ball i don't think he's above criticism we should be able to criticize him like we'd be able to criticize the 12th man on a team who said something silly yeah but that doesn't change anything about who LeBron James is, what he's accomplished on and off the court, the things he's done for humanity before this. Like None of that is, to me, affected by this. It's just right. we should be able to say he dropped the ball on this one. And let's also not pretend that a whole bunch of the people who are now demanding that the NBA and its employees stand up to China aren't the same people who would tell those same NBAers to shut up and dribble. Exactly when they make political statements that those people don't like. Like, the hypocrisy cuts both ways. That doesn't mean that what LeBron said isn't disappointing. It's extremely disappointing. And it doesn't mean that this all isn't primarily about money. And it doesn't make me any less cynical about the way that everybody has reacted to this, from, you know, LeBron's comments to the league's initial statement about it, to Tillman Fertitta's reaction, to... (laughs) 
James Harden going out of his way to apologize to China. Oh man, James Harden, like it's it's all been pretty disheartening to but, me. Like the, the most. The, honestly, the most disheartening line from this whole thing, and again, this to me isn't in an example of someone who probably doesn't know enough about the situation and what's going on over there, and that's fine because it, you know you you don't have to know everything about everything that's going on in the world. But when James Harden uttered the phrase about China, we love everything about what they do, or we love everything they do there. We love everything about China. I think it's like something along those lines. It was just like, man, like this. This is what it's come to, you know? Like, there's this cluster F of a situation going on. Now you've got one of the faces of the NBA, you know, probably not really knowing what he's saying and just trying to put some words together to to move on to the next question, uttering the words, we love everything about China. Man, that's that's not a good look. I, did he actually say that? I thought yeah. he just said, we love China, but no, that's he said, uh, a bridge too far. Yeah, no, he... Anyway, so yeah, that's that's all disheartening, and what LeBron did and said was disappointing. I'm just saying, like, you can acknowledge that without re-examining everything that he has done and said and stood for over the years through that same cynical lens. Sorry, the exact quote, just to get it right, was after saying we love China, he said, we love everything they're about. Great. <laughs> um, so yeah, like, I, you know... Both those players, I think, deserve to be taken to task for saying what they said. Um, but, like, there's a difference between, and I'll just kind of go back to LeBron. Like, there's a difference between calling him on this uh, and calling for him to be a better ambassador for the NBA or uh, live up to his own standard of free speech advocacy and calling him a fraud or a charlatan or basically a virtue signaler. Like, I find that line of thinking pretty troubling, to be honest. Uh, and if that's your big takeaway from this, I would just say, I don't think you were really listening to what LeBron and his peers were saying and advocating for in the past. And I don't think you ever really wanted to listen. And I think you were probably, like you just said, Cash, waiting for that gotcha moment that confirms something you already believed. Yep, agreed. So I think we can leave it there. I just want to say one more thing to any of our listeners who are users of the Score mobile app. I have seen a lot of frustration about the fact that the comments have been disabled for all of these China-adjacent stories. And I just want to take a second to kind of address that and explain why the comments are disabled and talk about how we can maybe work around that a bit. So on politically sensitive topics like this, the comment sections in the app without fail become incredibly toxic incredibly quickly. And I know the vast majority of you really just want to have a chance to weigh in and engage in a good faith, thoughtful discourse about a hot button issue. But unfortunately, the vitriolic trolls kind of ruin everything for everyone. But I'm sympathetic to those who want to be able to, to weigh in uh, and have a conversation and a dialogue about this issue. So I'm just going to say if, if any of our listeners have been frustrated by their inability to comment and want to have a discussion about it, feel free to hit up Cash or myself on Twitter 
Uh, or if you'd prefer, feel free to email us. You can get me at joe.wolfon at thescore.com. You can get cash at joseph.casharo at thescore.com. And honestly, feel free to send us a measured take about this situation, and we will absolutely do our best to respond. And if we have time next week uh, to maybe even pick out the most interesting ones and address them on the pod, because we really do want to hear what you guys think. And I feel, as many of you probably do, that it's really unfortunate that we haven't been able to open up the comments just because of the way that they have been toxified in the past. But I'd love to hear what you guys think. And uh, if, if you want to hit me up or cash up, I'd love to engage in a discussion about this. Well said. What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to Pound the Rock on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd also encourage you to check out The Score's other sports podcasts. For Major League Baseball, there's Expand the Zone. For soccer, we've got Sweeper Keeper. Puck Pursuit has you covered for the NHL. And the Fantasy Football Podcast with Justin Boone tackles, you guessed it, fantasy football. And in case you haven't already, please download The Score app, which is available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our feature content as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. So, with all that out of the way... Let's talk some basketball. (laughs) Let us talk some basketball because, as I said, we're just six days away from the start of the NBA season. And last week, we talked about four championship contenders. We've got four left. Four other teams that we think could plausibly win the 2020 NBA title. So of those four remaining teams, Cash, where would you like to start? Who did we do on uh, Friday? Who'd you write about on Friday? Because that would be the the uh, oldest one. Now. On Friday, I wrote about the Rockets. Let's talk Rockets. So yeah, a good place to start because I think actually this is one of the most interesting and potentially volatile championship contenders. Let's start with why we think they might be able to win. Why we think this Westbrook Harden experiment might actually work. Um I think for one thing, their offense should continue to be exceptional. Because even with the Paul for Westbrook swap maybe making the fit with Harden a little bit more incongruous, like Harden's an elite offense unto himself. It really isn't contingent on his teammates. And like... First of all, there's going to be a heavy stagger between him and Westbrook. And I think given how durable both of those guys have been, I wouldn't expect to see many meaningful minutes this season when one of them isn't on the floor. And when Harden's on the floor, it's just like, look at the self-creation that he is able to produce. Like, he shot 1,028 three-pointers last year, which is the most ever attempted in a season by a country mile. Okay. 958 of those were off of the dribble. 70 of them were off the catch. All told, 87% of his made field goals were unassisted. It doesn't really matter who you put around him. Like, he is going to be able to rack up extremely efficient offense. I mean, last season, 40% usage and almost 62% true shooting. Uh, And again, with virtually none of that production relying on anybody around him. So... I don't necessarily think that's going to change. I think Westbrook being there might make it a little bit more difficult in terms of having an extra defender who can muck up the middle of the floor. But 
I think also, you know, when Westbrook's on the floor without Harden, uh, the Rockets have a chance to be really successful in that framework as well. And there's just one number that I know is like, it's a counting stats number, and we've maybe moved past that a bit, and it's also not quite as meaningful because they're going to cannibalize each other's possessions a bit this season. But in terms of points created, total points created via scoring and assists, Harden and Westbrook last season combined to create 104 points. 104 points, and that's two guys... Between two human beings. ...who are now on the same team. Um, and it, it, it won't be really the same this year because a lot of their assists will be going to each other. But even still, like that's just crazy to think about. Yeah, and look, you know, I'm as skeptical about certain parts of the fit as anybody, but I also think... I also think we're overthinking it in a way, or at least like the harshest critics of this tandem are overthinking it in a way because, you know, even beyond the numbers and stats and like strategy thinking, there is something to be said, I think, for, you know, you mentioned the staggering. Like one of these guys is going to be on the court at all times, and sometimes both of them are going to be on the court in like the biggest moments. Between the way Westbrook can just run the ball down your throat and you know, say what you will about his shooting and his decision-making at times and whatever. Westbrook punishes defenses. Like, Westbrook makes defenses work because they constantly have to be on their toes when he is on the court and with the basketball in his hands. James Harden, as you mentioned, is one of the greatest individual shot creators the game has ever seen. There's credence to Daryl Morey's, you know, theory that he might be the just best pure offensive player ever, okay? So... There's something to be said for the fact that if you're playing against the Houston Rockets, they are constantly going to have your defense on its toes. They're constantly going to have your defense on edge. Like, and that will wear a team down over the course of 48 minutes. Maybe not all 29 other teams, and it doesn't mean they're going to win the championship, but I don't think there are even a handful of teams in the NBA who defensively can withstand the 48-minute pressure that a team with James Harden and Russell Westbrook will exert on them. Yeah, and like, the the thing about Harden's game, as impossible as he is to guard individually, the way that he plays kind of does make it easy on the defense in a way because, you know, one guy obviously is going to have a whale of a time trying to stay in front of him and predict his moves and counter moves and when he's going to step back and how to close out without fouling him. And defenders are going to have to collapse in the lane if he beats his man off the dribble. Like, there are a lot of things to consider, but a lot of the time when he's just at the top of the circle, dribble, 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 step back, four defenders are kind of getting a breather. I think having Westbrook there changes that equation a bit. And he's going to inject, I think, some much-needed life into their transition game because... D'Antoni is a coach, first of all, who's historically favored playing up-tempo. You don't say. But he's really had to slow things down in the past couple seasons because of the lead ball handlers that have been on his team. And last season, the Rockets ranked 27th in possession speed following a defensive rebound and dead last following an opponent's turnover. So I think that's going to change, right? Like, we talk about Westbrook and how he likes to rip and run. I would expect their speed of possession after defensive rebound to shoot up. And same as after turnovers. Like, he does not dither when his teams have a chance to get out in transition. So 
I think that's going to change, and that's going to give the Rockets, I think, some much-needed change of pace. Um, and another thing is, like, a lot of people have mentioned how being on a team with better shooting around him is going to help open things up for Westbrook and maybe improve his finishing around the rim, even though, you know, like, last season was one of his best finishing seasons ever until the playoffs when it totally fell apart for him. Um, but having a spaced floor for Westbrook, I think, is is going to be pretty devastating. And another thing that having better shooters around him is going to do is allow him to convert a lot more of his passes into assists because he had, at least by NBA.com's metrics, the biggest disparity in the league between his potential assists and his actual assists. And I think you can chalk some of that up to his imperfect passing, but you can also chalk a bunch of it up to the shooters in Oklahoma City. And I mean, he averaged 21 potential assists a game last year. Like, he's still an amazing creator. And I think in Houston, like there's not so much shooting around him. And we can get into that in a second. We talk about why they might not win the title. But I think the shooting is better than it is in Oklahoma City. And uh, all the looks that he's able to create for people on the perimeter, I think, are, you know, for the most part, going to be cashed in. Yeah, I think there may be like one shooter short, but if if you can imagine, you know, at times if James Harden's on the bench and Westbrook's running the show and they've got kind of like a spread pick and roll thing going with uh, Westbrook, Capella, and then you've got maybe Gordon, Rivers, and Tucker out there, like all capable yeah. to, uh, you know, a little Gerald above Green might be done for the season, Yeah, by the which way, is which a shame. Is... Um, but, you know, there are, there are ways where you can envision kind of that Westbrook in a spread pick and roll offense again with Harden on the bench where the Rockets would still have a pretty functional, you know, not just functional, but a very good offense if things go well. Yeah. Um, All right. So let's get into why this thing might flop and not even necessarily flop, right? Like I could, I see this team's baseline actually as being pretty high. It'll depend on seating, but I would expect them to win a first round series. You know, I wouldn't be at all surprised to see them in the second round, having a competitive second round series. I wouldn't be super shocked to see them in the conference finals. Why I don't think that they will win the title is, I mean, first of all, like the Westbrook off-ball stuff, which we've almost beaten to death at this point. But I just think it bears repeating. Chris Paul, if you watched Rockets games, when like when he and Harden were on the floor together... Paul might go like four, five, six possessions in a row without touching the ball. And he's chilling like five feet behind the three-point line and not really engaged in the central action. But there is still a defender glued to him out there. And that's just not going to be the case anymore with Westbrook. And we've talked so many times about the things that he could do to make himself a more effective off-ball player. But after 11 years of the same shit, I don't think that this is a year when that is necessarily going to change and like because Harden does have some off-ball magnetism I just would expect the result to be what it has always sort of been with teams that have Westbrook on them which is that he naturally becomes the guy who dominates the ball more because it just makes more sense to have the good shooter play off the ball and the guy who has more on-ball gravity than off-ball gravity handling it and given what we just said about how efficient Harden has been as an offensive player who controls the ball the vast majority of the time I don't know if that's necessarily a good thing Um, and then the other thing is like Westbrook's catch and shoot three-point percentage last year was 31.4 
that obviously has to come up. Uh, but even if it does, even if he nudges that percentage up, like let's say he shoots 35% on catch-and-shoot threes this year. Most of them are going to be wide open. And if he's shooting 35% on wide open threes, and as a consequence, there's an extra defender who is straying 15, 20 feet off of him to clutter up the middle of the floor and divert Harden's drive or muck up pick and rolls, that is a trade-off I think pretty much any defense is going to be willing to make. Yeah, and even hard and off the ball, like, don't get me wrong, better off-ball option than Russell Westbrook, not a bad off-ball option, but it's still, like, when you think of Harden's value, so, 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 so much of it is he needs the ball in his hand, and he needs to go to work one-on-one or one-on-two or one-on-three, whatever the case may be, and so the thought of him being turned into an off-ball threat, like, I guess unless we're... I, he could catch it and then attack. It's not like he has to catch and yeah, shoot, yeah, of no, course. Like, I, I actually think... Like, I don't think Harden is going to be any less efficient playing off of the ball than he was playing on yeah. the ball. He might even be more efficient. I don't think he'll be less efficient. I just think... I, I just think it's a shame to... Um, it's more that you're taking a bunch of his on-ball right. possessions and giving them to a guy in Westbrook who had a 50% true right. shooting last year. I think you're extracting a little bit of value from James Harden, offensive genius, and you're you're doing it not to accommodate someone that fits in perfectly with his team, but you're, um, you're extracting that offensive value from Harden in order to force-feed a guy whose efficiency leaves something to be desired. It's just not a good trade-off. Right. And the off-ball stuff with Westbrook, I don't think would be as big of a concern if he was the on-ball terror that he was in the past. But like last year, that just wasn't really the case, right? I mentioned 50% true shooting, which is very bad. And I know he does a lot of other things that that number doesn't really capture, but... Like, his mid-range pull-up that for a long time was, you know, a really big part of his offensive game has evaporated. Obviously, his three-point shooting has gone totally sideways. His free-throw rate was way down last season, and his free-throw percentage was way down last season. Like, he's just not an efficient offensive player. And given the number of possessions, at least historically, that he uses... Like, we can figure that he, like, he's never, or at least I don't think since maybe his rookie season, been below 30% usage. If you're using a third of your team's offensive possessions when you're on the floor and converting them into points at a rate that is well below league average, and you're also turning the ball over a bunch, you're kind of, like, part of the problem and not necessarily part of the solution. And, like, the Thunder succeeded last year you know success being a relative term but they won 49 games last year because their defense was top five in the league their offense was 17th and Westbrook obviously had a much bigger hand in the offense than he did in the defense so I think that's pretty telling yeah and the thing is too it's not even like you can use the argument that well he had to play that way on that Thunder team which he might have had to because their offensive options were limited post Durant but he played like that when he had Kevin freaking Durant beside him too, right? So it's not like, oh, well, you know, he's taken a back seat to a historic score before. No, he hasn't. If anything, the criticism was that down the stretch of big games, Durant deferred to Westbrook too much. So, yeah, I, I do think there'll be a bit of a, 
a loss there in terms of offensive value, forcing Westbrook to fit in with this team. And, you know, we haven't even talked about the other side yet. Yeah, I think that's important to consider. That, to me, is where the real trouble comes in. Because Mm -hmm. James Harden, underrated post defender. Fully on board with that. Other than that, we know about James Harden's defense. Russell Westbrook, for as athletically gifted as he is, I don't know if there's a more inattentive off-ball defender in the league. And that's saying something. Like, this could be, it should be, a defensive disaster in the backcourt. And, you know, P.J. Tucker is is obviously a transcendent defensive player. Like, he's yeah. that good defensively. He's also turning 35. Exactly. Season. He's turning 35. There's a lot of miles on him. Nene, I think, is a solid defender, but I don't think he's the type of defensive anchor that can... He's turning 45 this <laughs> You know, there... Oh, sorry, I, I just realized I said Nene. I meant Capella. <laughs> we'll edit this. Uh... <laughs> Capella is a solid defensive big man, but he's yeah. not, to me, the type of big man that can, you know, anchor a defense when there are such black holes at the point of attack. So I think the Rockets are actually going to be pretty bad defensively. And they were pretty bad defensively last right. season because... I think they'll be worse this year. Yeah, I mean, look, they last season, those personnel losses, you know, mainly Trevor Ariza and, to a lesser extent, Mbamute, like, losing those guys compromised their switch everything system you know they had to switch a little bit less they just didn't have as much defensive talent on the perimeter and they slumped to I don't I think it was like what 18th or 19th in defensive efficiency and Tucker really just like held that thing together by himself and I don't know how much longer he is gonna be able to do that like it's also just tough for a wing defender and I know Tucker plays some small ball five in those tuck wagon lineups but in general it's very tough for a wing defender even the greatest in the world guys like Kawhi whoever to kind of like single-handedly prop up and anchor a defense right right well and then the other conundrum is like obviously what's so great about Tucker is his versatility but then you run into these questions like if you need him to be guarding on the perimeter well, then who's, like, guarding these big forwards inside? And if he is guarding those big forwards inside, well, then who is guarding on the perimeter? He's a magnificent shape-shifting defender, but he needs guys around him who can help take advantage of his versatility, and I just don't see that on this Rockets team. And I think, like, the perimeter and the point of attack is really going to be the biggest concern. Uh, They did grab Thabo Cephalosha which I think is a nice pickup and a guy who can provide some of that resistance on the perimeter and can switch and defend multiple positions, but he is also 35. And as far as guys, you know, who are going to have a lot left in their legs come playoff time, I just don't see a whole lot here. And the supporting cast in general would be a bit of a concern to me. Like there isn't a ton of depth, even when you're talking about just the shooting that's supposed to provide the spread for these uh, Westbrook and Harden run spread pick and rolls. It's like Austin Rivers, Gary Clark, uh, Isaiah Hartenstein, <laughs> Ben McElmore. I mean, Daniel House had a great shooting season last year. I don't know if he can keep that up. Cephalosha isn't much of a floor spacer. Like, again, Green is out for the season, which sounds innocuous, but they do really need his shooting. Like, are they going to have enough spread to open the floor for those guys? I'm not so sure. Yeah, me neither. Like, even the one, the lineup I threw out there of potential... Westbrook spread pick and roll with himself, um, Clint Capella, Gordon Tucker, Eric Gordon, PJ Tucker, and Austin Rivers. Like, that's the bare minimum for a yeah. nice spread pick and roll offense. And that's assuming 
all of Tucker, Rivers, and Gordon are having good shooting years. Gordon, I think, is the safest bet out of those three to shoot the ball well. But yeah, but he had a really, by his standards, not great right. three-point shooting season yeah. last year. So. so that's what I'm saying. And that was like the best I could come up with, you know, with Harden on the bench. So yeah, right. there's and Tucker pretty much only shoots it from the corners. Also, like yeah. he doesn't have much of a three-point shot above the break so I think like a lot of the teams we've discussed so far and this would be the fifth team now we last week we did Sixers Bucks Jazz and Warriors Warriors now we've done Rockets so that's five out of the eight we're going to talk about I think the Rockets like those other teams especially like the Warriors and Jazz to me are good enough to be on this contender list um, in this season of parity but still too many questions for me on both sides of the ball for me to, you know, confidently say they can win the championship. Like, I feel like still a lot would have to break right for them. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think they can have a pretty strong regular season, win 50-plus games. But come playoff time, especially the defensive side of the ball, I think, you know, as much as we harped on the offensive fit, I agree that the defense is the bigger concern. We've seen how difficult it is to scheme around one weak spot defensively to have to scheme around two and when you get to the playoffs ideally you want your best players on the floor at the same time for as long as possible but to have two guys who are vulnerable defensively can break a team in the playoffs and um, I worry about that for the Rockets but let's move on to our next squad here Um, where do you want to go let's go Denver I wrote about Denver on Monday so the Nuggets to me are such a fascinating team I think man out of these eight contenders other than the Clippers, I think the Nuggets might be the most complete and balanced team. Honestly, I, I think I said last week it'd be between Denver and Utah to me in terms of who's the most complete team. But I think Denver gets a slight edge. I think they're a little deeper. And I think the best player between the two teams is Nikola Jokic. And that matters come playoff time. Um, I think they're, they have a chance to be pretty good on both sides of the ball. Last year, they were one of uh, only four teams and actually the only West team to finish top 10 on both ends of the court. Jokic is a dynamo. Um, you know, I think a lot of maybe concerns people had about him last year is what that would look like in the playoffs. You know, his first... He was unbelievable. Exactly. His first taste of postseason action. Well, his first taste of postseason action ended up in 14 games played where he averaged 25 points, 13 rebounds, and 8 assists on 51-39-85 shooting. Remarkable. Nikola Jokic is the real deal. He is a superstar. As doughy as he is, I understand that it doesn't make any sense, but just live with it. These are the results. He's amazing. He's a superstar. And he's also, I don't think, as bad defensively as people assume he is. He's not great, but like you can more than get by with Nikola Jokic soaking up all those minutes. Millsap, obviously not what he once was, but I still think he's a nice compliment to Jokic in the front court. And then I kind of like the mix of talent they have in the back court. I think everyone wants Jamal Murray to pop if this team's truly going to be a championship contender, and we yeah. can talk about that. But I think even with what he is, last we saw him, I think the combination of Jamal Murray, Gary Harris, Barton, some of the like the surprise, Malik Beasley, right? Malik, that was Monty say, some, Morris, yeah, Monty Morris, um, Tory Craig had like a decent like they've got a lot of dynamic talent in the yeah. backcourt and on the wings where I think especially during the regular season, like they can just blow teams away with their depth of talent yeah. and their kind of um, dynamic talent, right? Like everyone does different things. They, it, it's just a really nice mix on both sides of the ball. I don't know what you want to add to that before I get into why I don't think that dynamic mix of talent can win a yeah. title. Well, I mean, I'll just, I don't have much to add. I, like I will just boil down my kind of case for the Nuggets to this. Like Jokic is incredible. 
and he makes everyone around him better. He doesn't get injured, possibly because he never jumps. Yeah. Uh, they have quality depth, like you said, at every position. They have continuity, which, aside from the Bucks, no other contender really has. Their core players are all young and likely to keep getting better. I love the Jeremy Grant addition. I just think he gives them so much more defensive versatility. One of the most underrated pickups of the summer. And, like, some much-needed athleticism, right? There's just not a lot of athleticism on this team. And he's an awesome cutter who I think is going to play really well off of Jokic. And the other thing is with Grant there, I don't think they'll have to rely on those Jokic Plumley minutes, at least not to the same extent, because in a Grant-Jokic configuration, they'll have a legit rim protector behind Jokic when he comes up high in the pick and roll. That rim protector just happens to be a guy who can also guard wings and space the floor at the other end. So I think that's a fantastic pickup. And about their defense, like they got pretty lucky with opponent three-point shooting last year. But I also think their defense got better in terms of the personnel. So I don't think it's crazy to think that they could repeat as a top 10 defense. And their offense was, I think, sixth last year. And I could totally see that being at that level again or possibly even better. So I'm, all, I'm like leaning toward picking this team to finish with the best record in the West. That's what I think is going to happen. Um, so Jer- the Nuggets finished top 10 on both ends of the court last season, and they add a guy in Jeremy Grant who's a 39% three-point shooter last season who can also defend basically all five positions. Yeah. Like That's a tremendous pickup. And a guy who's been getting better very quietly throughout his career. Another thing with the Nuggets defense, so when I – sat down to write this piece and I was doing some research. I don't know why, but I had it in my head that after getting off to that great start defensively last year that didn't make a lot of sense, they kind of tailed off as the season went on. So I was looking at different splits, and then I realized they finished 10th in in, in defense, and after the All-Star break, they were actually a top 7 defense. So there wasn't really a drop-off. Like They were just a consistently good defensive team, essentially start to finish last year, and came within a game of making the West Finals. Like I just think they're... A solid defensive team. I think there's enough evidence there. And they just added a close to elite defender, at least versatility-wise, in Grant. So, yeah, I still think they'll be great on both ends. I also think there's enough young talent, good contracts here that, and you've mentioned this too, if there is a team that's going to get into the mix for a guy like Bradley Beal, man, does this team make a lot of sense. And I do think, while we can't speculate about something like that happening. I do think we do have to consider that stuff when we're talking about who's going to win the title in a wide open race because in a year where there is so little separation between like six to ten teams, let's say eight teams, whatever it is, one of those eight teams getting a guy like Bradley Beal would make a huge difference. And who or whoever it is, right? Insert big trade deadline acquisition name here. The Nuggets might be better equipped to make that deal than any of these eight teams we're discussing. Here's the thing for me. I want to talk about Murray in a second because I do believe he's a huge swing piece, not just for this team, but for like the whole landscape of the league. And to tease another project we're working on, we are writing a piece about the players who could really tilt the balance of power this season. And Murray is at the top of that list. So I want to talk about him and what he needs to do to get to that level um, where he can nudge the Nuggets up into being a legit contender. If I were the Nuggets, I would just put Murray on the table for Beal. Throw some salary filler in there. I think Plumlee's contract and Wancho together would work. 
uh, and just get it done because Beal is basically the player that the Nuggets need Murray to be. And he's only four years older, and now you've committed to paying Murray over $30 million a season. So he's no longer deriving value from the minimal amount of space that he's eating up on your cap sheet. I think you have a pretty good shot probably to extend Beal through the rest of his prime. And if not, like you have him for two seasons. And if next year you're not in the title mix and he has indicated that he won't resign, there's always the option to just flip him again. Like, I would do that if I was the Nuggets. I'm pretty sure the Wizards would do that. Well, that's where I was going to go with that. That was going to be my counter is, do you think the Wizards do that right now? Like, we, we don't know what Murray is this season yet. We're yeah. going based on what Murray has shown us, what I think his contract is going to be. Yeah, no, I think they would. Like, but I, do, do you think that, that Jamal Murray at, at his contract number has more value to a soon-to-be rebuilding Wizards for an extra couple of years than Bradley Beal does for a year. Like, you, you know what I mean? Like, what? I, I do think so because he is 22. And I know I just used that argument. <laughs> like, I'm being kind of facetious, I guess, because I said, oh, Beal's only four right. years older. But for the Wizards' purposes, because they're not in position to be good for the next four years, it actually does make sense for them to grab the guy who is four years younger because they're planning for you know a longer term future than the nuggets are right now and in murray i think they really they do have a potential future star that they can build around and they would have him locked up for five years after this one that's gonna you know take him through his age 28 season when you can basically extend him again and he still presumably is going to be in his prime like you could really have him there for a long time I think that that's something that they at least should be willing to do. But um, assuming that that doesn't happen, because it seems very unlikely to me, possibly from both sides, let's talk about what Murray has to do in order to help the Nuggets get to where they're trying to go. He's, it sounds very simple, but he just needs to become a more efficient go-to scorer. And there's a lot that goes into that. Mm-hmm. Um, look, well, I talked about how much of a real deal Nikola Jokic is. And what his numbers were in the postseason. I'm also of the opinion that in 2020, you know, you can't win a championship if your offense solely like flows through a big man. And in the playoffs, but Jokic is just a seven foot guard. <laughs> Let's be honest. But he's not a perimeter scorer. I think you right. need a. I'm not saying that your best player has to be a perimeter scorer to win a championship, but I do think you need like a true, whatever you want to call it, whether it's like a go-to bucket guy, a closer, whatever you want to call it, I think you need that level of perimeter score on your team to win a championship. And, you know, like a perfect example to me, Philly last year with Jimmy Butler. I think Joel Embiid was still their best player, and I think you can win a championship with Joel Embiid as your best player, but I think the Sixers had a better shot to win a championship last year because they had Jimmy Butler, and I still think you need one of those types of perimeter wing scorers on your team to win a title no matter how good your best big man is. Mm. And so I think the Nuggets need one of those guys. And the only one on this roster that I think has the potential to be that is Jamal Murray. I do think there is that potential in there. But you look at like last year. So during the regular season, Jokic's usage percentage was three or four percentage points higher than Jamal Murray's. 
in the playoffs, Murray's was a couple percentage points higher. Mm. If you look at field goal attempts per 100 possessions, they were about even during the regular season. In the playoffs, Murray jumps in by a couple, right? Like that's kind of the trend of the playoffs. And so I just think he needs to be a much more efficient scorer, a much smarter scorer, needs to make better decisions with the ball in his hands if the Nuggets are going to beat a team like the Clippers, the Lakers, even a team like the Rockets in the playoffs. I really think just consistency is the big thing with him. Um, Providing a bit more resistance at the point of attack defensively, staying attached when going around screens, better shot selection, getting to the free throw line more, and shooting better on threes, honestly. I like you watch Murray play and you see what it looks like when he goes supernova and you see the degree of difficulty on some of the off the dribble threes that he's capable of making and you see how shifty he is and what a, a, a sweet stroke he has and you kind of come away thinking that he is this hyper efficient player because in a way he plays like one but he's really not or just hasn't been to this point and like he put up 53.8% true shooting last year, and as a lead guard on a team with championship aspirations, that ain't going to cut it. So he needs to be more efficient. He needs to be more consistent. And you know, comparing their situation to Phillies is not really accurate because Embiid can't do any of the things that Jokic can really do with the ball in his hands as a dribbler, as a passer, as a shooter. But I agree with you on this point. Like At the end of games... And I think you really saw this in that Game 7 against Portland, right? Where C.J. McCollum was just taking over, getting to his spots off the dribble, getting into that mid-range, and just knocking down pull-up jumper after pull-up jumper. Casual fans in Denver who only started watching during the playoffs last year probably think C.J. McCollum is the best player in the world. Yeah, they're probably the ones who did that ESPN rank that put him (laughs) 13th. Um, But for Jokic, like as much as he is capable of creating, whether it's off the bounce, whether it's from the elbow... It's just a little bit more labored for him, right? He's obviously not going to be as quick. He's not going to be able to get to his spots in the same way. He can create those shots for other people, but not necessarily for himself. So I do sort of agree with you. And I think Murray needs to grow into being that legit co-star or at least bona fide second banana in order for the Nuggets to hit their ceiling. Yeah, honestly, I've got nothing more to add to that. I think um, think they're... Very talented. They've got a superstar at the top. Mm-hmm. They're good on both ends. They're as deep as any team in the league. I just think the one thing holding them back from, from honestly, winning the title is yeah. a closer-type go-to perimeter scorer. And I would say I still don't fully trust their defense in the playoffs. Even with the Grant addition, and even given that they actually defended quite well in last year's playoff, especially Millsap, I still just can't fully trust it as long as their two franchise tent poles are, like, I won't say defensive liabilities, but defensively vulnerable. Um, and especially when they play the one and the five. Like, it's just so easy to put those guys in the pick and roll. And I know Denver has counters to that with Jokic hedging and guys pinching in to help from the wing. But that would worry me a bit um, in the playoffs against some of these Western Conference teams that are going to have a ton of offensive firepower. So let's talk about another one of those teams. Uh, let's talk about the Lakers, who you wrote about uh, in a piece that I believe is dropping today in the last part of our eight-part championship contender series. Why do you think it will work for the Lakers? LeBron James and Anthony Davis. Um, Say no more. <laughs> yeah. No. It, listen, LeBron James, 
I've said it about 80,000 times since the end of last season, is taking names this year. He's going full FU mode. I think LeBron's going to be in the MVP talks. Like, I think he might only have one of these years left in him, but I think this is the year. I think Anthony Davis fits beside LeBron James better than any superstar LeBron has played with. I'm not saying he's better than Dwayne Wade. He fits better next to LeBron James than yeah. any superstar LeBron's ever played with. They can sleepwalk into an elite offense simply by running LeBron, Anthony Davis pick and rolls with Danny Green standing somewhere. Mm-hmm. They actually did address their lack of shooting. If you look at it, like I, I went through it, <clears throat> seven of their 12 projected rotation players above average three-point shooters, both last year and for their career. So they've got enough shooting now around LeBron James and Anthony Davis. They're going to have the two best players on the court, not the best player in the third. Like They're going to have the two best players on the court 95% of the time this season. And when you get to the playoffs, we know superstars matter. Other than the Clippers, who can maybe, maybe give them a run for that. No one can match the top-level star talent on this team. And if they're healthy, and we'll get to that, that's probably a reason why they might not win the title. If they're healthy, um, and they can surround LeBron and Anthony Davis with guys like Danny Green, uh, even you know Avery Bradley, who I think was a really underrated pickup for them. One thing I love about being able to pair Avery Bradley and Danny Green together is... You can start them together, in my opinion. And I think they're the Lakers' best lineup would actually have both of them out there because even though neither one of them is a point guard and they you know, potentially both be in a backcourt, defensively, one of them could be the defensive point guard and the defensive shooting mm-hmm. guard like the, in the backcourt. And you can almost hide LeBron defensively in that case, right? Like Danny Green and Avery Bradley, if you look at the metrics, are both used to most of their minutes being guarding the opposing team's best player. So you can put those guys on the two best perimeter scorers or the two best scorers on the opposing team and hide LeBron James on defense, which is probably the best bet for this stage of his career. Yeah. So I but think you can't we'll get into this in a minute, but you can't do that against the Clippers. You cannot do that against the Clippers. And that's um, where, you know, if we want to talk about why they might not, the matchup yeah. issue there is is an issue. Right. So but let's I, leave that there and we'll we'll return to that when we I talk think about for the, the most Clippers, part, but. if we're talking just throughout the season, you can mostly hide LeBron on defense, which I think will further allow him to go ham on offense, where, by the way, he averaged 27 points and eight assists in a down year last year. You know, you've, you there's just too much star-level talent here. There are a nice amount of lineup machinations that I think Frank Vogel can play with. I think their best lineup is LeBron, Anthony Davis, Danny Green, A.V. Bradley, and Kyle Kuzma. Mm-hmm. And I think I will start transitioning into why they might not win it. Now, I think a big thing here is Anthony Davis has to be willing to play center. Which, in today's NBA, like, who cares, man? It's not what it used to be. You're not going to get bruised down there. They're not closing games with JaVale McGee or Dwight Howard on the floor. Well, they better not. not. They're just not going to. They better not. I think they're going to start games with one of them, and that's still minutes you're starting games. Like, again, talk about the playoffs. What what I mentioned in the piece is, you know, they don't need to start the season with their best five starting games, but by the time April rolls around, they better be doing that because— but you want to talk about you know preserving LeBron by hiding him on defense. Maybe in a way you're preserving Anthony Davis by not having him bang with opposing centers on a full-time basis. Fair enough. That's what I'm saying. But by the time April rolls around, when those playoffs roll around, your best five better be starting the game because if your unnecessary stubbornness and commitment to an inferior starting lineup spots a team like the Clippers, even a three or four point lead after six to eight minutes of every game that's a problem because the margin for error is that slim so I guess we can start talking about why they might not win and and that's it for me one I don't know if they're gonna run their best lineup out there Mm -hmm. uh two 
health-wise. As much as I just said, I think LeBron's got at least one of the years left in him. He did miss significant amount of time last year with the first major injury of his career. Anthony Davis misses an average of about 15 games a year for his career. And if one of those guys sits, all of a sudden this team's very shaky again. You know, I meant if LeBron sits, we've seen what, to be honest, better supporting casts have done with Anthony Davis for, and it's not much. Yeah, and I would also, like, you mentioned the shooting. I don't know. Is there really enough shooting around LeBron and AD? Like, outside of Danny Green... You've got Bradley, KCP, Kuzma, Troy Daniels, Alex Caruso, Quinn Cook, Jared Dudley, like all decent to good shooters, but most of them are either quite unproven or don't figure to play a ton of minutes. But you also just named a lot of guys there, right, that are at worst average to slightly above average shooters who are going to be getting better looks with LeBron James and Anthony Davis. Yeah. Um, I worry a bit about the positional overlap between AD, LeBron, and Kuzma. And, like, you mentioned their best five. That basically features Kuzma playing the three, right? And defensively, that is not optimal. Again, this is where the matchup with the Clippers matters, right? Because most Uh, nights, if you've got Green, Brad... Like, Green and Bradley can also guard threes, by the way, especially Danny Green. I don't think Bradley can. Okay, Green can. Yeah. Right? So, most nights, if you've got those two guys and Anthony Davis on the floor... Mm -hmm. It shouldn't be a problem that LeBron and Kuzma are maybe guarding like the 3-4 or the 1 and the 4, whatever the case may be. Against the Clippers, it's a problem. I would say I just like, I don't have a ton of faith in their perimeter defense, you know, outside of Danny Green. Um, What is Rondo doing here? I just... So you still (laughs) doubt playoff Rondo, eh? I certainly do. (laughs) Like at this point in time, I just don't think that he has a place on this team. And... He is basically their secondary ball handler, right? Like, LeBron is effectively going to play point guard. You mentioned the pick and roll between him and Davis and how devastating that's going to be. I expect LeBron to average double-digit assists this season. But there just isn't really anybody to share that load with him. And if Rondo is the guy who's going to do it, I don't know that I love that look for the Lakers just because of how limited he is at this point in his career on both sides of the ball. I've said it before. I think this has a chance to be like a really devastating playoff team. They have the regular season to sort of figure out what works and what doesn't. And I think, you know, the supporting cast is fine. It's not great, but it's fine. I think they have enough to win the title, uh, health provided, as you mentioned. But I just think that there is one team that, is going to be a problem that's going to be standing in their way, and that's the Clippers, who so, who we can transition. Let's just to talking go right about to the now. Clippers and let's talk. You you're, you wrote about them yesterday. Yeah. So why will it work for the Clippers? Why will they win a championship? The very short answer is Kawhi and PG, and it's not just that those guys are so insanely good, which they are. It's that they occupy such premium real estate in the NBA landscape, like no other team has two elite wings. It's just extremely difficult to match up with that. And there isn't a team in the West, in my eyes, that has the perimeter defense to handle both of them. And it's one of the biggest knocks on every other contender. And I feel like it keeps coming up. You'll be talking yourself into one of them as a potential championship team, but then inevitably you get to, wait, how are they going to guard Kawhi and PG, like you go through it, the Jazz, the Warriors, the Rockets, the Blazers, if you want to include them in this mix, 
the Lakers, like maybe, maybe they can get by with LeBron guarding one of them and Danny Green guarding the other one. I but think, I think that's, I think that's serviceable defensively. Yeah, it's definitely not ideal. And I, you know, the other thing is like it's not just about being able to match up man to man, like with two guys, because. The Nuggets actually weirdly like might be the team that's best positioned to do that. If you think like between Grant and Torrey Craig and Gary Harris and even maybe Malik Beasley, like they have a bunch of guys who can maybe handle that assignment in spots and they can cobble together 48 minutes of Kawhi and Paul George man-to-man defense. But like we talked about, they have two guys in Murray and Jokic who are attackable defensively and you can bet that Kawhi and PG are going to attack those guys because both Kawhi and PG are very good at attacking big or small mismatches. So there's just a lot that goes into stopping both of those guys. And like the Clippers are the only team I think that could match up with the Clippers defensively in the West. We can talk about the East teams. Sorry, the Lakers. No, the Clippers are the Clippers are the only team that can guard the Clippers. Oh, I see what you're saying. saying. Yeah. Yeah. No, by by which I mean, as far as matching up defensively with other teams, like the Clippers are going to have probably the best perimeter defense in the league. It's just a massive advantage to be able to put two elite wing defenders on the floor without sacrificing anything offensively. And no other team has that luxury. And I just think that's going to make the Clippers really, really difficult to beat. And I mentioned that like no team in the West can match up with them. I think the Sixers and Bucks might have the perimeter D to hang, and they also don't really have the serious liabilities in their rotation. So I tend to think the Clippers are more likely to lose in the finals than in the West playoffs, but I like I also don't think, or I'm skeptical, that either one of those East teams would actually be able to outscore the Clippers, even if they managed to slow LA's offense down a little bit. So that's where I'm at. Yeah, I just think the Clippers are going to be so tough to play against every night. Um, I've mentioned before, I guess, concern like during the regular season. I think there might be some rough patches just because Paul George, again, and it cannot be overstated, is literally coming back from double shoulder surgery mm-hmm. and is going to miss at least the first handful of games, if not more. Kawhi can miss a quarter of the season and be fine for the playoffs. So I, I think regular season-wise, there might be moments this season where people maybe panic about this team or think they're not as advertised or whatever the case may be <clears throat> they just got to get in the playoffs and and I do think they're the best team in the league and so if you know gun to my head I had to put money on one team right now it would probably be the Clippers although I don't know why my gut is telling me LeBron's got something <laughs> special for us um, but yeah one of the LA teams and I, I would give the Clippers the edge just because I think they're more of a complete team I think there are a lot fewer question marks about them both roster wise defensively whatever the case may be I guess like, I don't know if you're looking for one weak spot in this team like is it in the front court like that they don't have maybe a yeah a traditional championship type starting center or like starting big man I guess that's an, but like again I don't know in 2020 is that really going to be the reason you don't win a championship I doubt it. Well, this is the reason why I think actually if there is a West team that can or is going to beat them, that it is the Lakers. Because, like, 
what is their answer to Anthony Davis? Well, see, this was gonna when when you mentioned whether Danny Green and uh, <clears throat> yeah whether Green and LeBron or whoever could actually guard <clears throat> Kawhi and Paul George. The counter to that is, I think Danny Green and LeBron James can do a better job guarding Paul George and Kawhi than anyone on the Clippers can do of guarding Anthony Davis. Yeah, I mean, Jermichael Green was kind of their answer to their lack of defensively capable big men, but he's not some elite stopper. You know what I mean? Like, I don't, I don't know what they're going to do against Davis, and honestly, Jokic too. Like. I don't know that they really have the goods to handle him, but I just <laughs> the Nuggets don't have LeBron, so I you know don't think it's going to be as much of an issue against the Nuggets. But like they run into this Lakers matchup, and yeah, I mean like it, it might be an issue their lack of front court defense. Uh, yeah, I, I I mean, and not to mention again, Jamichael Green is a little bit more mobile than their other bigs. Like um, if you talk about like Harrell. Not that Harrell isn't mobile, but I think he's just like he's a little bit undersized and he's a little bit too jumpy to be like a backline rim protector, or at least you know an above average one. And then you have Zubac, who in a drop coverage I think can manage himself quite well, but defending in space is pretty vulnerable. So it's not just going up against like other elite big men; it's also going up against pick and roll heavy teams whose guards can roast slow footed bigs in space. And I guess that to me is like the biggest weakness. Um, some people have also mentioned like their lack of passing. Um, and there is a concern, I guess, because like I think Kawhi and PG are going to be handling the ball most of the time. Those two guys are very good at drawing extra attention, whether it's just drawing straight double team or whether it's getting those weak side defenders lurching into the lane ready to divert their drives almost proactively. And neither of those guys, I would say, is particularly good at making that skip pass that puts the ball in the hands of open weak side shooters. But again, like even if their offense is just like ISO heavy and kind of my turn, your turn, it's still going to be so effective. It's because, still Kawhi Leonard and Paul George. Because those guys are unguardable. Especially Kawhi, man. Like we we saw it in the playoffs last year. It's absurd. And and Paul George, like they do six nine, and slithers around like a point guard. He's got a tight handle. He can get his shot over basically like any wing defender that you throw at him. And Except try- probably Kawhi Leonard, right? And then if you try and throw like a big man defender at him, he's just gonna beat that guy off the dribble. Like so, it doesn't re- like that part doesn't really matter to me. I guess the front court defense is the one thing that I think might actually be an issue. And then maybe like the injury concerns and the fact that Kawhi's quad thing seems to be a degenerative condition and Paul George has had these shoulder surgeries and that the two of those guys might not be at the peaks of their powers in the spring. And if they aren't, then obviously, you know, the Clippers are in big trouble. Yeah, I don't see. The, to me, the only thing that can derail a Lakers-Clippers-West final, <clears throat> other than injuries, which is every year, but the only thing that can derail a Lakers-Clippers-West final is seeding, right? Yep. If, for whatever reason, they end up in the same side of the bracket, which is very possible. Well, because, I don't know if that's... I mean, I don't think the Clippers are particularly vulnerable, but I could see the Lakers losing to like one of those, like the, the Jazz or the Nuggets. If LeBron and Anthony Davis are healthy going into a best-of-seven series. I'm I not can, saying it's likely, but I could see it happening. I think it's more likely that they would get upset by one of those teams than that the Clippers would. I think in, unless the Nuggets trade for someone, or like I don't, I just don't think mm-hmm. any of those teams. 
No, I agree. If I had to pick, again, like seeding pending, I would say that this is the West Finals. The, and these man, two LA teams. what a West Finals that'll be. And we'll get a preview of it opening night. Well, not really because Paul George is hurt, but yeah. still, it'll be fun. It's going to be crazy. Uh, I am so excited. And like you, I think, it, it, you know, gun to my head, I would pick the Clippers to win the title. So those are our four remaining championship contenders. And that is this episode of the podcast. Uh, we are going to be back early next week with a full season preview and prediction episode before the season actually kicks off in earnest. And again, like I said before, uh, I would love to maybe hit on some of this LeBron NBA China stuff at the top of that episode if we have time. So I'll remind you once again, if you want to write in and provide some thoughts or your take on the situation. I'm at joe.wolfon at thescore.com. Cash is at joseph.casharo at thescore.com. And I would also encourage you to read uh, Cash's article, which I think is really good. Um, and even if you can't comment on the app, uh, you can, again, hit us up on Twitter or in our email inboxes. So for now, we're going to sign off. For Joseph Casharo, I'm Joe Wolfon. We'll talk to you all next week.